There's a famous story from the ancient world that the philosopher Socrates was informed that the oracle at Delphi had been asked, who is the wisest man in the world? The oracle had apparently said that the wisest man in the world was Socrates of Athens. Upon hearing this, Socrates thought for a moment and replied, well, if I am the wisest man in the world, it's because I know that I know nothing. In many ways, this could be considered a starting point for this week's discussion. It contains within it many of the founding principles, the architecture of the ideas we are going to talk about. It contains the idea of reason, of inquiry, of materialism, and of the uncertainty of truth. Are these ideas useful to us today? Welcome to this week's episode of the Spinoza Triad, in which John Gibbs, Richard Miller and Dan Rowland attempt to explore contemporary society using the big ideas of philosophy. We set ourselves the task this week of understanding consumerism through the ideas of Stoicism, Platonism, Aristotelianism and the other ethical ideas of the classical world, namely Epicureanism, Scepticism and Cynicism. These ideas were the dominant ideas of the classical world. Were they still relevant today? Particularly when looking at the world of buying and selling and advertising and consumerism and the internet. Well, it certainly made for an interesting discussion. But I think surprisingly, I mean, I, I think these ideas have something to say. They had some, I think they had something to say to, for, for the Romans. They had something to say to medieval people. Had, I mean, Stoicism is really popular in the 19th century. Could you say it's because they're talking about the human condition and the consumer society has quite a, a shriveled idea of, of the human condition? Yes. I, I think uh, if we think about the consumer societies, capitalism is really sold to us on the idea that if we consume a thing or have some thing that you can achieve a sense of happiness or fulfillment set up perfectly isn't it for these kind of thinkers consumerism tries to answer something about the human condition these philosophies are confronting that you will die that yeah. time passes and there's nothing you can do about that the aging yeah. takes place and there's nothing you can do about that that the physical yeah. properties of our existence are utterly outside our control so there's no, so there's no point in worrying about death there's no point in worrying about aging and there's really little point in worrying about the, the events that take place outside of your control. There's a lot of events. Most, most, of, most of the things take place outside of our control. So uh, right. that, that we are going to step under a bus tomorrow is, is outside of our control. If that's what's going to happen. Epictetus, happiness can be understood by one principle. Some things are within our control and some things are not. Could we also add Aristotle's view that maybe desires are out of our control as well? We can't choose our desires, but we can use the reason to manage them. I would say the, the Stoic view is manage the things you can manage. And one of them is, your own, is yourself. If you do fall ill with a horrifying disease, there's nothing you can do about that. That, that was probably destined. That's, that was written into the fabric of the universe. You know, it's a deterministic yeah. universe. Yeah. But how you react to the cards you've been dealt is up to you. How does that relate to consumerism? Well, I think consumerism tries to flip that on its head and it insists that you can 
build your own self, build your own life, construct yeah. your own identity. And you should feel positively guilty if you, if you can't somehow defeat the logic of the human condition. And, that, right. and I think that produces That's the, interesting, the, the yeah. pain and the agonies and the difficulties, even to the extent that capitalism or rather consumerism brings into our lives a, a kind of a personal agency uh, and choice model when it comes to things like, um, I don't know, serious illness, so that to, uh, people are congratulated for having defeated cancer. They took it on. They saw it down as if that indeed were a choice. But as Philip Larkin noted, being brave never got you off the grave and no amount of personal determination ever defeated a serious cancer. The Stoic would argue that you can deal with it in a number of different ways, but that certainly won't defeat the cancer. Your death will be determined one way or the other. The consumer should take responsibility for your own success in life is one of the most perniciously alienating beliefs in our culture. idea of a, a way of living which has become popular again the idea of self-help and but the, the greeks seem very interested don't they in the romans on, on what it means to live your life well i mean it's the, the backbone of ethics yeah. this idea of uh, they had of doing everything well living your life well as a kind of a, a, almost like a project the idea of being a good all-rounder and this idea is eudaimonia it's not necessarily happiness as we would understand it it's more a kind of uh, a fulfillment a happiness through rational aristotle saying so obviously happiness is something that we're working on all the time so it's like so it's different from consumer project in that yeah. project, like a work of art so a human yeah. life is like a work of art you spend 70 80 years creating and you only know if you become a eudaimon at the end of your life not during it and so right. happiness unlike the consumer society where we keep saying happiness is a state you know it's a bit it's a, it's a state of mind, an activity as, that consumes your life. It becomes like a, an interest, you know. A, a bit life. like philosophy, though, isn't it? I mean, philosophy yeah. has become yeah. an academic subject, but... It's that idea of the examined life. That is yeah. the best kind of yeah. life you can lead, or, or one of the best ways you can lead, is to, is to lead a life of reflection and thinking and discussing, yeah. you know. So we're, we're doing it right now. We are, we are actually living the most, <laughs> yeah. the most profoundly... Fulfilled Three philosophers just sat here chatting away. This is, this is as good as it gets, actually. Yeah. For just adjust my toga. So you More don't need anything else than this. <laughs> yeah. Just wine and cheese. Well, yeah, and yeah, not too much wine either. But glass of water, no. glass of water uh, and some cheese. That's what that's what Epicurus said. So just water, water, cheese, and bread, friends. Some fresh bread, bit of cheese, bit of cheese to give yeah. it, to give life its, uh, you know. And um, and some water. Other than that, all you need is friends and a, and a reflective philosophical approach to life. Which yeah. which I mean, that's uh, uh, quite good, doesn't it? The concept of hedonism comes from Epicurus, doesn't it? And it's yeah. it's a very different idea that people, uh, including myself, until I, I'd read into him a little bit more, that 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 idea of moderation, that his view of happiness, is very different, perhaps to the way in which the consumer culture, happiness to an extent in the consumer culture is suspended. You suspend happiness until you consume the thing that you want. I look forward to the new iPhone, whatever it is you're gonna buy, but it's you, you don't achieve satisfaction until you've 
got the thing itself. Do you need it? I don't know if you come across on television the, the, the Japanese lady who asks you to throw away most of your stuff. Mary Kondo. Have you come across right. Mary Kondo? Mary Kondo is uh, a very popular author and website producer, what would be called an influencer. I think she's been around for a number of years. She wrote a book called Tidying Up with Mary Kondo, which is a very curious idea, really, this taking something as quotidian and ordinary as tidying up and sort of reifying it into the level of a of a ritualistic process, a process of being the curator of your life through some sort of process which is both confessional, just divesting yourself of things to make yourself purer and more more and more free, in a sense. So the Mary Kondo method, tidying up with Mary Kondo, is that you take you go around your house, you look at objects and you say, does this bring me joy? Yeah. It doesn't matter if you feel guilty because it was given to you by somebody, but you don't really like it. Or you look at it and you ask yourself, does this bring me joy? It's very curious that it's hard to define what exactly that joy is. It's clearly not the Epicurean joy, which is purely Epicurean pleasure, which is the absence of pain. This is something other, something very consumerist. In fact, I, it's really quite, uh, I don't know, strange. I can't imagine in visiting the Mary Kondo house. You would, I don't think you'd be hard to get in the front door of her house because it would be so full of nothing but meaning and joy. You know, I'd be worried about knocking over a vase or, you know, burning the bottom of a saucepan because you'd realise that things have been curated to a process of joy giving. But I suspect, I suspect in my own case, that uh, freedom uh, is both most, e most easily attained, or joy rather, is most easily attained in Steptoe's living room, surrounded by a, a mountain of old tat, which can at least obscure the uh, sort of existential horror of the certainty of death and ageing behind it. You know, I think freedom through tat. <laughs> yeah. And uh, is, is where I would go with, with that. Um, however, um, Mary Kondo's method is, is, although it appears to be very austere, it's all about self, it seems to be about self-denial, which might be somewhat stoic. It seems to be about the simple life, which might seem rather epicurean. It's certainly stoic in the sense of the self-project, you know, improve yourself through the loss of material things, through minimalism, through giving things away, through slimming things down in some ways. It, there's something slightly Orientalist about Mary Kondo's appeal as well. The vulgarly consuming West looking towards the East for some sense of something more austere and more aesthetically pure. But that aside, it's basically straight up consumerism, except this time uh, you're making room really for more joy giving stuff in the future, I presume, because the absence begs the possibility of greater consumption in the future. You're still associating happiness with objects and things, just, it's just you're going on an object diet if you like. Some things are essential. Uh, relationships, uh, you have to eat. These kinds of things are are essential. And then he has the mm. secondary stuff, which is good but not essential. And then yes. the things like mm. fame and these kinds of things, fame and status, are non-essential and should be avoided yeah. because they can bring discomfort. Like the, the wine and cheese one. A bit of wine and cheese is nice to share with friends and you get maximum happiness from that. If you then drink five bottles and a camembert of brie and a stilton, you know, whole whole blocks, it, the sort of outcome of that could headache and uh, bad stomach. It isn't excess, it isn't taking your mind off of existence by consumption. Again, very similar to Aristotle, because it's like the doctrine of the mean. 
you know, where you take the, the middle ground in all actions. Yeah. I mean, he's saying happiness is, is actually the activity of the soul is what, that expresses complete virtue. So with consumerism, that's an absent word. It almost start, it's starting to sound old fashioned when we start talking about virtue. Virtue might be the actual thing that makes us deeply happy. I, I think the idea of virtues there is, is split here though, that for the Stoic, it seems that right. The virtue is the target, you know, to be virtuous and, you know, wisdom, these these kinds of things will yeah. then give you the ability to understand what you can control and what you can't. So it's a key point there. And and I I don't think for the Epicurean view that the virtues are perhaps arising out of the pursuit of pleasure. And a, a shift in the accent there, isn't there, a little bit? Yes. In what yeah. way? Well, in a sense, I mean, for the Stoic, you want right. to be true, true to yourself. What, what are you for a stoic? What are you? Yeah. Some, you're some little spark of God, aren't you? Uh, but not God in the sense that we, the Christians would know God, not some, not, some, not some divine conscious being, but the divine thing that runs through creation. And human beings mm. have that and, that. and they find that in themselves when they are reason, when they're exercising reason. That's interesting. Artistic yeah. judgment or philosophical pursuit. So for the stoic, you have to discover the art of life. And the art to live life properly is to live it productively and reasonably and rationally, because that within you is the spark of God. That sounds very similar to Aristotle again, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds very similar to Spinoza, to Aristotle. Yeah. God what is about... nature and we are part of nature. No, no wonder the Stoics survive better when Christianity comes along. For a Christian hearing Stoicism and, the, you know, man, man contains a divine spark of a good universe. The universe is driven by divinity. That, that makes it the best of all possible universes. So this is a good universe driven by divinity. If you struck down by some horrible disease, that is, yeah. you have to, you, you put up with it. That's where you get the name sort of stoic. You tolerate that because that's part of the divine plan. You can't know what the divine plan is. And that goodness that expresses itself in us is our reason and our rational mind. Mm -hmm. Your position within it is to react to it the, the best the best you can. So when you, if you're a Christian and you hear that, it's probably going to be quite, meld quite well with your yeah, yeah. but for yeah. epicureans the, the universe is neither good nor bad it's simply a random action of atomic particles particles right. come together they produce you they disperse when you die there's nothing more after death there's nothing there's nothing of you before death but for the epicureans mm. there's no divinity in the universe there is simply a material world you see what you see is what you get this is it there's nothing beyond life nothing before life the gods, though yeah. they exist, have no interest in you at all. It denies every, every, so every element of Christianity, basically. <laughs> it's denied. Yeah. So it does, it does accept some kind of metaphysical reality, but that has no interest in you. Well, the, well, the, uh, the Epicureans. Yeah. There's no metaphysical reality. Just, it's, a complete, it's a completely materialistic reality. The gods, the gods are disinterested. Oh, the gods exist, but only as creatures, only in the sense that lions and tigers exist. So part of the universe has gods. Okay, so, so the Epicureans, like, so the Epicureans, Epicurus, and particularly Lucretius, the, the, you know, the Roman poet, when they're exploring, you know, what are the gods? Well, the gods are there, they're on, they're on their mountains, whatever, they may be casting thunderbolts and things. But they're not, they're not have, they have no interest in our lives. Why would they? Because they have everything they want, in a sense. The curious thing about the Epicureans is they, have, they do have a very modern so scientific sound to them. Because the world is made up of atoms. These atoms mm. exist randomly. Everything, yeah. mm. whether it's this, 
this mug or this table or a block of cheese or me are all made of exactly the same essential material. We all break down into that. This thing is called atomic particles. They get that from Democritus. It all breaks yeah. down into nothingness. It all comes back to nothingness. Things in the universe are eternal, move forever through the universe. Nothing drives yeah. them. There simply is a movement in the universe. Oddly, there's a kind of random quality, which Epicurus and, um, calls the swerve. So particles swerve into each other, producing, producing some form of randomness, which produces diversity, i.e. cheese and animals and trees, mm. uh, and giving mm -hmm. them their essential qualities. But there is, no, there is no divinity to this. There's no necessary goodness or badness to it. So the, the, the particles, when they form into a god, well, they, they, they might as well have formed into a tree or to a rock. Right. So the god is a physical They're atomic thing. They're just part of the material thing. universe, exactly. Right, right. okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think for the Epicurean, he's saying, well, I've, if you meet a god, then mm. it's a bit like meeting a unicorn. They, oh, well, there, are, there are, oh, you see, oh, well, there are unicorns after all. I didn't realise there were, but there, there's a unicorn. Mm. So if you right. meet Zeus, you wouldn't, you, you, but you don't believe that there's a divine plan for the universe. So where does this leave us with consumerism then? The science, apart from being, odd, let's say, oddly, surprisingly kind of atomic theories. Mm. Well, that's, that's curiously early. And the, and the randomness sounds very almost... Um, quantum physics -y. you know apart from that if you push that out it's their ethics that's i think speaking yeah when you encounter the ideas of the stoics or the ideas of the epicureans you are surprised by their modernity if you read uh, lucretius on the nature of things that the world is governed is made of atoms that things are evolved through an evolutionary process that when you die there's nothing before you were born there was nothing there are no there are no spirits and hobgoblins. There's religion has done more harm than good. When you read Lucretius saying this in the in the first century before Christ, I think I think it speaks to the ordinary person. I think if you go into a in, into a pub, if you if you encounter the man on the Clapham omnibus, and you say you're concerned that the world before us might not exist in some sort of Kantian kind of way that there's a that I'm, I'm projecting onto some noumenal universe some existence that I that is formulated in my own mind or that some evil demon in a Cartesian sense may be constructing the world around us. people aren't generally mostly in their ordinary day-to-day -day lives concerned with material reality they're going to accept that tables are in front of them that dogs can bite them and the world is real that is what Epicurus and the Stoics are saying, this is a material world, you are in it, and you must live in it. How is the best way to live? And therefore their ethics is the thing that most, most speaks to us in a contemporary voice. And whether we listen to that, or whether we pursue our own answer to the problem of how to live within the constraints and mysteries and unknowability, limitations of this apparently material existence in which case they just push it to the edges of their mind and rather will continue this world and try not to think about death too much in that world then if you don't follow the advice of the stoics or the epicureans then you may as well follow the advice of um, the advertising industry and get a new car I really like it. I really like uh, Epicurean thought o over mm -hmm. Stoic. I got a recommendation book-wise for, for Stoicism it's by Donald Robertson. There's a great book called The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. 
which yeah. is because there's a really strong relationship between cognitive behavioral therapy which you can you know you can get on the nhs now and stoicism and i think it's very popular at the moment stoic ideas aren't there now list of stuff that you have to do you know take inventories mantras that you kind of remember and it's it's a good way of engaging with anxiety understanding anxiety stress you become less stressed when you realize that you can do nothing about the emails you're going to get on a monday morning outside of if you're not going to work until monday morning you can't do anything until monday morning so forget about it and deal with what what you can right now in front of you that's quite an That's empowering idea approach, isn't it? Yeah. and i think cognitive behavioral therapy is really trying to understand what what you can control and what you can't and the things you can't control you, know, you keep your side of the street clear you can't do anything about that my, my problem with all that is it becomes very regimented and and where is the space for pleasure in there? Whereas the book I looked at for the Epicurus, I mean, other than like Google searches, is this one travels with Epicurus, Daniel Klein. I thought it was a brilliant book about aging. The tone of the, the Epicureans was just, it's okay to to like just sitting down and chatting with friends. It's okay to have a you know a glass of wine and some cheese, as we said before, and and really enjoy it. Make, make the most out of it. This is what life's about, these kind, kinds of pleasures. Though I think in actual mm. practice, they're very similar. A Stoic and, and an Epicurean person, I don't think they're in, in, in their day-to-day lives, what they actually do isn't that different. Yeah, I think you could draw a neat Venn diagram and they'd be a very overlapping. Yeah. yeah. Epicureanism and Stoicism and indeed Cynicism. The Cynics have a, a very interesting, in the sense of what they might say to us, a Stoic says something like, find, find the spark of divinity within you, which is your reason your intelligence and use it to the best as you say richard there's a there's a slightly sort of finger wagging quality about that yeah. and then there's and if the epicurean is seek pleasure which is above all the avoidance of pain the cynic says something like all of this really all of this world you live in this material world is just a material world all of it is beset with human vanity and most of the things you think are true aren't true. If you start from the point of view that all the things you think you might desire, your desires are probably not true. The victory you might seek in that fight, it's not the, by all means, seek pleasure in it. But if the pleasure is victory, victory is an illusion. Desire for objective illusions. Hum, yeah. Human aspiration is mostly about vanity and about convention. The, the cynic comes at, comes at life with a very much the view that mankind is in his essence freest when he wants and desires nothing at all. So it's very like right. Buddhism. Very, very like Buddhism. Free yourself of, of all ego. All desire. Yeah. And all desire. So very similar to Siddhartha Gautama. Yeah, so there's, so the great the great cynic is a guy called uh, Diogenes, and he famously lives in a barrel. Yeah. There's a story that it's sought out by Alexander the Great. You've probably heard that one already. Ale- Alexander seeks him out and says, I must, you know, speak to the great Diogenes. Now, Diogenes is an interesting character because he used to walk around. He lived in a barrel. He fed, he fed off scraps. They called him Diogenes the dog. People mocked him for being a dog, so he urinated on them. And uh, yeah, he, he had great manners, did he? Didn't he? Had terrible he? manners. He was like to <laughs> masturbate in public as well. <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> Which just, is... I'm just imagining the sort of story they tell about Alexander the Great. Ah, Diogenes, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> what matters? Oh, not again. He's doing it again. Oh, God, what he does uh, best. Was it, has he finished? <laughs> Apparently, the actual the story is Alexander mm. sought, sought Diogenes out and said, Diogenes, I'm the most powerful man in the world, kind of thing. I'm I'm Alexander. What do you what can I do for you? And he said, Well, get out of the way, you're in you're in my you're in the sun. I'm doing my you know, basically I'm doing my tan, you know, get out of the way. 
and there must have been a very awkward silence for a moment. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then Alexander apparently says, "Well, you're, if I weren't Alexander, I'd be Diogenes. He is also as powerful as me in the sense that since Diogenes wants nothing, desires yeah. nothing, and sees everything else as vanity and stupidity." He's the freest and most powerful man. And what it's been interesting to meet someone like Diogenes, or if you've ever have met people who genuinely have no desires for anything and no fear But, of any social convention. I mean, that's really quite a tradition. Can I just throw a counter to that? Is that is that realistic? Because isn't that the, the the kind of seed of insanity when you start to think that I have no relationship with anything or anyone with of so not having any desire? Yeah. I mean, he's also he's also like Dan, isn't he? He's he's a little bit of an Epicurean in some sense, though, isn't he? Because that, that is his pleasure, you know, just to have nothing. The counter I was going to throw is Aristotle again, because Aristotle says that desire is the only thing that moves us. The intellect doesn't move anything without desire. So we can't, we can't truly escape it. And so it has to be managed in your relationships with others as well. So I know John used to that thing about finger wagging, but I think if you're going to live a virtuous life, there's going to be a little bit of finger wagging that goes on. Oh yes, I mean, I think that, that's. Know? And I think if we live without finger wagging, we end up just perhaps feeding a consumerist lifestyle where we all live as these kind of selfish islands with uh, no relationship to anything except our own, own uncontrolled desires, which is a recipe for misery. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the cynics are saying you should you should consume and um, they are they are simply saying that if you if you were the person that runs after women and consumes madly and and so on, then you're just you're just stupidly conforming yeah. to some kind of idea there of materialism. You know that you, yeah. the mad, if you're free of greed, if you're free, Diogenes, you're free of, um, yeah, Diogenes would say if yeah. you're free of desire, then you're free. In terms of of, of consumer culture, though, so Diogenes would say, mm. "What? I don't need anything." Yes. I mean, would that be his thing? Well, I don't need anything. You know, Epicurus would say, you know, I, I need a little bit of something, but not too much. Yeah. And then what would the Stoics say? What? what would, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aldi for some Toro Loco, you know, the, the red wine with the full on the front, which tastes so good but so cheap. He would be there. What would the, what would the Stoic, I mean, where's, where's the Stoic going shopping and what's he going to get? I think it's interesting to look at consumer culture. This is how marketing works. You know, you've got ideology, marketing, social structures that are all around us the whole time, trying to make us think that we are free. Uh, but at the same time, we, we'll still go and buy stuff anyway. We still consume and carry on consuming. How marketing plays on the production of our identity, probably the most, the central, most powerful that human beings can be motivated by is a sense of who they are. And ever since Edward Bernays and uh, Vance Packard, the marketing and advertising, the mad men industry has been in the production of identity and particular of things such as the mass production of individuality. That the, the, the irony, mass production producing a sense in us all that we are the special one this makes you special it is unique for you and yet everyone else has the same thing everyone else desires the same thing the mass production of individual desire or of course the, the central feature of marketing which is fear at the heart of all marketing is fear and insecurity insecurity about getting old insecurity that you might be lonely you might not have friends you might be you're going to die ultimately behind all advertising is essentially to, you know, shop your way out of the grave. Do you remember the 
the the artist Michael Landy, who they got they got a kind of empty shop that was between owners in in London, and he, the public walked past, and there's Michael Landy, the performance artist, destroying everything he owned. So he right. he, he destroyed yeah, everything I remember, I remember apart that, from the yeah. clothes he stood up in. He, <laughs> His credit cards, yeah. his his car, his, his every gift, even the things, even his own art, any art that he possessed oh. that he'd made in the past was all destroyed right. so that you could watch over a period of weeks him turn everything he owned uh, into a pile of, you know, that big industrial grinders and choppers yeah, and right. ashes and turn it into a pile of ash or pile of bits. And even the bits would, because someone offered to buy the bits off him and said, we'll have that as an art display, you know, the pile of bits. And he said, definitely not, that's going to be destroyed as well. That's going to be dispersed. So he ends with absolutely nothing. I mean, the reaction to Michael Landy is, oh, you lunatic. <laughs> that's, that's an awful idea, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, eventually. He got, wasn't doing things he shouldn't have been by even himself. Even his spare change, his cash has gone the in. He's got no money. Well, yeah. maybe for a brief moment, Michael Landy was very free. Although I, I think when Michael Landy had finally ground down all of his worldly possessions, everything that meant anything to him, everything he possessed, both banal and materially important and sentimental, everything had gone. What he found was, well, a kind of nothing. I think if you've seen Michael Landy interview, you realise he has nothing to say about that work of art. It's startling, it's surprising, but ultimately it's deeply banal and deeply vacuous. Well, yeah, John, wasn't there something, didn't, wasn't it his, there was, something he'd inherited or something, couldn't he? It was yes. something from his dad or something. I, I re- yeah, something that's why his, I remember the story. Something he'd been given by his dad who was no longer around, he destroyed that. Yeah, yeah. Left with nothing. Yeah, left with absolutely nothing. In the end, the destruction of all of your things gets you to kind of Mary, Mary Kondo land. It's a sort of uh, vain seeking after after uh, nothingness, as if in that you'd find some meaning. Just as Just as banally meaningless. Mary Kondo's pursuit of uh, that which brings you joy, whatever that might mean. You know, in the end, I suspect that uh, it's all, you know, all, all these ideas have been explored in a way by um, Shakespeare in, in King Lear. You know, what are you when you run out into the storm without any clothes on? You're just a poor forked thing. You know, re- reason not the need. I mean, the marketing men may turn our desires against us. But uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't surround ourselves with the symbols and the things and the odds and ends and the bric-a-brac of this brief passage through life. As again, I say that the happiness of mankind for me would be found in Steptoe's front room next to a moth-eaten stuffed bear and a, a rusty suit of armour. It is in the tawdry tat of human existence that there's a sort of authenticity and realness that uh, I think Michael Landy would simply expose it in the end. It's a vacuous void, a sort of Marabar cave. That's all you find at the end of the rainbow of destruction of your stuff. Yourself is now becoming a, a packaged entity that you actually start selling online through um, social media and also experiences aren't real unless they're recorded. The Greeks had this idea of a project of the self that kind of got lost insofar as we were the product of our class, various other social structures gave us our identity and we've moved into a postmodern age now where we can construct our identities again in on the one hand 
in a similar way to the Greeks. You become a project that you work on both physically, psychologically. Yeah, yeah. There's an extra dimension there where it becomes stretched across time and space through social media and stuff. So there's a there's almost a split of the self. There is there's a self self of us here, and then there's a self online, a virtual self yeah. as well. The only thing I'd say is that's quite interesting thought, but I think the self that we have now different to the self that perhaps Aristotle or Plato were talking about is the fact that the one thing that's missing is virtue so that you relate to yourself aristotle and plato so you can only truly be happy you have good virtuous relationships with others not just yourself so i think that's what's missing in our postmodern age is we endlessly disappear down the, the navel uh, and we forget how to relate to others in, in to use that old-fashioned word virtuous way when the ancients are saying virtue is the thing that makes us happy capitalism produces consumerism as a means of maintaining demand in a world saturated yeah. with stuff so you have to generate demand and the proposition that consumerism or capitalism offers you is making yourself better the yeah. project becomes not virtue becomes divorced entirely from ideas the most worthless thing is valuable if it is yeah. desired yeah. so you know people feel it's only authentic if it's recorded rather than just remembered yes yeah, so that's yeah. an, I mean, that's an interesting one with the recording as well Dan, because mm. it's so true isn't it? you go to a gig now you yeah, know yeah. when i was when i was a lad you know <laughs> i remember seeing Michael jackson <laughs> yeah my memory of that other than he you know i couldn't really see him it was too far away um and i was with my mum i think it was like it was michael jackson <laughs> i was like where <laughs> and i remember doing that thing you know you, you sort of hold your finger and thumb up to see how small he was and he was you know i could barely see him but but <laughs> there were no phones obviously you just saw it was dark you know there's whereas if you go to a gig now nowadays all, all you see when they're held up phones everything is you, yeah. it's not enough to be there you have to see it through if you like the other you observe yourself consuming and you must be yeah. the, the idea of the performative nature of your own consumption, living the life I expect to live as a consumer. With Aristotle, the, the good is something which comes from living virtuously, which is living reasonably. So obviously Aristotle says with his argument about, you know, the, the, the knife, the blunt knife, um, a good knife is a knife that cuts. So therefore, a good human being is a human being that that thinks because that's what we're supposed to do so if yeah. we if we cut off from our reason we therefore become a bad or impoverished human being this is completely opposite to our consumer lifestyle where we're not supposed to think about anything except our next well, uh, next purchase except where uh, i mean just to, we've managed to do this in every episode so yeah. we better do it this week we bring in zizek <laughs> and, <that> is, <laughs> and so on and so on <laughs> and so on and so on and, and, that, that, and that yeah. is that, that his nose. Yeah, where, where consumerism finds that there's a desire is to find yeah. the desire to manufacture the desire. And if the desire is to virtue, then they'll, they'll manufacture virtue. Going into Starbucks and it says on the side of the cup, every Starbucks you buy, some, it, 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 they plant a tree somewhere or some money but, goes to some sort of... No, reason is something which is only owned by the reasonable person. It can't, you can't be told. That something is right or wrong you have to work it out yourself starbucks cannot provide a reasonable person with the conclusion about their products unless it can produce a product which is called being the reasonable person so it can market it back to you yeah being you want to be the reasonable person what? you want to be you want to be you want to be self-contained is that is one of the problems yeah i think we should say though I'm, the, the example he uses is tom's shoes i think buy a pair of shoes and they give a pair of shoes to, to, a, to somebody a that needs it in yes. a yeah, developing country and it's 
he says that in in consuming so we, we, you know consumer culture we've bought something it then allows us a kind of space we distance ourselves from the actual trauma of the thing so consumer culture is very clever like that it allows us to think yeah. that in a stoic sense i'm consuming this thing on what i can control of it but at the same time i'm also allowing other things to happen afar i can do nothing about it beyond buy the cup of coffee that will or the pair of shoes that do something that lacanian view of desire being kept at a distance from you mediated from you by fantasy so consumer culture sets up in such a way that if i can get the new pair of trainers whatever you know I, i need these new trainers and really the desire is in the fantasy of having the trainers and it's kept away from you when you get the trainers there's a collapse there because the symbolic you're facing the real. Immediacy, Boy, yeah. another classical reference is the idea of, of tantalus you know the thing is always slightly out of reach and so yeah. consu- the trick of consumerism and it, it's it's extraordinary yeah. success is to respond very very efficiently to your desires or they can and they can always lead you to the suspicion that there's more that you should have that you haven't quite got. Buying stuff, it's just, we're just hardwired into us, isn't it? We are, we're desiring subjects, we want stuff. You know, it's very difficult to live life in such a way that you don't think that you actually want or need any power or these kinds of things. Yeah, Epicure, yeah, Epicureans, Stoics and Cynics are, are all looking at the world and Cynic asks you whether you really, whether, whether these things mean anything at all, to recognise their essential yeah. meaninglessness. The, the Epicurean asks you to pursue the simple life and the stoic says that the life of the of some kind of discipline of creativity is, is the closest you'll get to the divinity that runs through things yeah and i don't doubt for a minute that when any virtuous roman who followed the stoic thoughts like marcus aurelius because if you read marcus aurelius's meditations they're full of complaints about people not living this life you know he's surrounded by gluttonous romans and this ill-disciplined people and the roman empire isn't a model for self-control and, yeah. and order. The people living in Epicurus's garden and eating a bit of cheese and drinking some water and enjoying their pleasant discussions. And lots of other people, I think, were, were inspired by those ideas. I don't think they lived them. And I think your point earlier, Richard, was that is the consumerist society a response to a, to a quite natural desire for people in this yeah. short span of existence that we've got? We, we all, we all, we, us and the Stoics and the Epicureans and the... And the, and, the other, and the cynics are all clear on this. Life, life is short, and we suspect there's nothing after it. Maybe, maybe it's quite natural, in a sense, to desire to surround yourself with material products and objects that insulate you against at least poverty. And maybe Diogenes could live in a barrel, partly because he's, you know, he's in a uniquely wealthy bit of Athens at a particular time when he's indulged by people who feed him and think of him as the philosopher. But most of us who try yeah. to live in a barrel are going to get beaten senseless at night, have our stuff yeah. stolen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate it. So, uh, you know, in other words, I don't, I don't, I think it's, it, these are, these are the sort of aspirational philosophies, aren't they? But I think they all have something really useful to say. I don't think but, you could live yeah. like any of them. So it's quite an elitist. And throughout history, the, the, yeah. the poets tended to be rich young men who could, uh, on, on private incomes. And the, yeah. the philosophers tended to somehow have, have come had come down from Cambridge with a with a private income. It's a, it's much Elitist. much easier to live the reflective life when you've got a nice income. Yeah, you, so when it, you don't it, have any desires. Yeah, and it's much harder to live the reflective the undes- life free of desire and, and, and aware of of human vanity if you're working in the chicken factory or you're or you're you know you're pulling or the guts out. Of chicken, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting though. I think that the stoicism has has been marketed neatly packaged again. It works quite mm. well 
on the one hand because it does allow inequalities and whatever else to to carry on well you just keep your side of the street clear yeah you know, there's nothing you can do about there is a radical responsibility within people to to do more although I, I, there is something lacking in a way in, in all of these uh, i find the stoics the epicureans uh, the um the cynics and we haven't really talked about the skeptics but all of them they're, they're although they're deeply modern in many ways you recognize you recognize their view of the world because it is a very materialistic view of the world it's about your about it's about very individual it's about how you live in the world what they're lacking in a way is a kind of universalist view of humanity it's your responsibility to others it's how you might care for others there's nothing think of the good samaritan there's nothing there's nothing of christian ethics in these attitudes in these ways of living other than the stoic would i think and the epicureans would say do no harm however also they have to say unlike uh, christianity and the later religions they don't turn the body against the soul or the soul against the body you're not an enemy of yourself your body isn't your enemy in the sense that it is in uh, christian uh, theology and you don't wish to escape it into some world beyond this this is the world this is how to live in it do either of you have one that stands out more than the others every age it's kind of handy to be a cynic yeah. if you look at our world <laughs> at the what's going on in the middle east between israel palestine and apply a kind of cynical view of this and you see a great heap of stupidity and if yeah. you look at politics mm. a great monstrous heap of stupidity everywhere around you diogenes was appalled by his fellow man for his constant lapsing into stupidity and vanity what about you dan did you did you have any that uh, well I, I i still think it's the yeah aristotle's got the got the edge on this one creating good relationships with people and yourself yeah i mean i, I personally really enjoyed the stoics for quite a while and the, mm. the epicurean stuff i just actually seemed a bit more realistic really and 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 also the strength of these positions each of them i think is it, it makes you question what we mean by happiness and pleasure what 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 does it actually, mean yeah. to be actually happy that i think if you can just pause every day and consider that what what actually is it i want and as an antidote to some of the ways in which the most insidious ways in which marketing and consumerism tries to sell you things and, yeah. and i think the most insidious ways it tries to sell you things is incorporated deeply i think into the way that objects are presented to us as desirable afraid for young people today in this young people today but you feel afraid for being young in a world of constant self-reflection i think we talked about a bit, a bit about this last week the way the way in which the world is constantly shown to you in a way that yeah. you can make these comparisons with your own your own physical imperfections your own lack of something or other they mm. they offer something of an antidote to that sort of philosophy it isn't really that useful is it for day-to-day living you know it's interesting for conversation but i mean these these are very useful right chaps that that's the greeks done <laughs> <laughs> who are we do who are we doing next week <laughs> you have been listening to the spinoza triad as john gibbs dan rowland and richard miller discussed classical ideas and applied them to contemporary society. Our objective each week is to take some big ideas that interest us, think about and discuss in relation to some contemporary issues. Next week we will be looking at a concept which has interested philosophers for many centuries, the idea of authenticity. We'll be applying this to films such as American Beauty and again to contemporary issues in society. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, you may wish to follow the link on any of the platforms to the anchor site where you can leave a voice message we'll endeavor to incorporate it in future episodes 
or we'll discuss your ideas, questions, thoughts, observations or corrections on, in future episodes. You'll also find an email link where you can send written comments, which we will try to do the same. Thank you for listening.